welcome to this week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. This week, we have gone to see the new Marvel film, uh, Captain Marvel. Um, yeah, it's a Marvel film. I think it makes sense. Um, and we are here tonight with Gerald, Anager, Maggie, and Darren. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, hello. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like we... Damn you, uh, da- damn you, Darren, for not letting me get away with my uh, <laughs> with my usual job. I know. I deliberately <laughs> just said say hello today. <laughs> just, to, just to thwart you, Gerald. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, um, yeah, so we all went to see Captain Marvel over the weekend. Um, it's like the bit next big Marvel film that is going to lead in towards Avengers Endgame, I believe. That's right. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're going to have a quick chat about the film tonight. Well, it'll probably be a long chat, but we're going to have a chat about the film. So who wants to kick off tonight? Um, Darren. Darren. Darren, why don't you go? Okay. Uh, no, are you saving yourself? I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save myself. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to kick off? I'll go. I'll go. You go. I yeah. thought it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I did have three pretty heavy drinks while I was watching this movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I had been looking forward to this movie for a long time, and I was very predisposed to love this movie. So having said all of that, I thought it was awesome when it first started and you have the scene with Carol Danvers um, in her, is it Spree? What are they called? Squee? Cree. Spree? Cree. 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 <laughs> Did you Cree. watch this film? Spree? <laughs> 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 In her Cree uniform, and she's fighting with Jude Law, and he's like, you have to control your emotions. And I'm like, oh, my God, is this a man telling a woman to control her emotions? What? What? And I didn't like it, and I was very (laughs) upset. (laughs) I thought, please, please don't let this be this movie. (laughs) And I was so happy that it was not this movie. Um. And even again, when they had, you know, right at the beginning, when they sort of divide the world into good and evil, and the Kree are good, and evil are, what are they called? What are the evil guys the called? Scrolls. The scrolls are evil. And, like, not only are they evil, but they're green goblin lookalikes. And I just thought, oh, no. And I thought, but maybe I can maybe I can be okay with this because maybe maybe the green goblins are just like a, a, a metaphor. A, a <laughs> uh, just a, a metaphor for, you know, the evil part of humanity rather than just being, you know, a dichotomy between good and evil. But I didn't like that either. And then when they did a switcheroo and it turns out that, you know, the villains, they're just freedom fighters. Okay, they're not terrorists. They're just freedom fighters. And <laughs> they're just looking for a place to call home. <laughs> I loved that. Um, absolutely loved it when this whole emotion thing was turned on its head and Dude, Laura is like, but can you finally control your emotion? And be, and she just like blows him up. She blows him apart. She doesn't have to control her emotions because she is stronger than him. So loved that. Um, and I just really loved that this was a woman kicking ass and being amazing. And I thought the special effects were incredible, like really special, um, enormously um, spectacular stuff. And I loved the humour. I thought the cat was hilarious. And I thought it was all really, really good. Mm, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, who's who's next? Mags, why don't you give give your view? Yeah, sure, I'll go next. Um, look, I think I 
came into the movie with really high expectations. Um, Captain Marvel, I think, is, um, you know, uh, marked to be one of the new leading um, superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So the fact that she needs to replace Captain America or uh, um, Iron Man or Thor or any of the headline, current headliners is a really big ask. Um, and so I think I went in there with that in mind and with really high expectations. Um, even though I found the film, I found the film overall really entertaining for a Friday week. We went into, um, we watched it in a, in a packed out cinema and when the credits started playing, when they showed Stan Lee, is that his name, Stan Lee? Yes, that's um, his name. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the opening credits with, of, of images of him, the entire cinema burst into applause and cheers. Um, so it was uh, a cinema full of an audience that really wanted to be there and were real fans. Um, so, you know, that was a great atmosphere to watch the movie in as well. Um, did it live up to the expectations I went in with? No, it didn't. Um, I thought that they could have done a lot more in setting up her origin story. Um, yes, she's a really strong, fierce female character, um, but I actually didn't find her as compelling or relatable as Wonder Woman, um, and I thought that there were a lot of inconsistencies in the plot and in the way that they set up her backstory that made it really hard for me to relate to her um, and to really um, want her to succeed. Um, when I think about the, the um, latest characters that Marvel has introduced or Disney has introduced to Marvel Cinematic Universe, like Spider-Man and um, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp and Guardians of the Galaxy, they did such a great job at setting up, you know, really fun, lovable characters and in with plots that could have been hugely absurd. But for some reason, they were able to pull it off. Um, with this... Um, with this character, I don't know if they had, uh, they gave enough time to setting her up and creating her character and, and the relationships that really defined her, like her relationship with Wendy Larson, a.k.a. Um, the scientist from the Cree universe. Um, that relationship could have been so important and so pivotal, you know, a female relationship with another um, strong female senior figure uh, or her relationship with her best friend. Um, so... Um, overall, I thought it was fun, great action, uh, a great Friday night flick, but it didn't blow me away. Hmm. Okay. Um, why don't I go next? <laughs> Can you, are you happy to go last, Jez? Last but not least, sure. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I've I, I got to say, I, I did find this film entertaining, but I, I didn't really have a very strong reaction to this film for whatever reason like I kind of felt like it was like yeah it was okay I didn't love it and I didn't really hate it it was kind of just like in the middle there somewhere for me um I need you guys to start drinking more alcohol before you watch these movies right you guys need to be at least two drinks in I was very sober I was probably too sober right so like I, I guess like so I've been spending the last couple of... Because we went to see this last Friday. And I've been sp spending the last couple of days trying to understand, like, basically deconstruct myself to try to understand why it is that I kind of was not hugely blown away by the film. And I, I think 
um, I think that there's there's a few reasons, right? I think we've been spoiled with Marvel films for the last few Marvel films. Um, mm. So I think my expectations were very high. So, like, I think when you have super high expectations, if a film <laughs> is good but not amazing, it's kind of like that, that sort of does, you know, that affects your perception of it, right? I, th- I think the other thing also is that um, I probably tend to agree with Mags that Carol Danvers... The way this film was done, like, her character for me was not super well-developed. Um, and I, I, I... So, I think part of it is the fact that one thing that I did notice was that the plot is relentless in this film. As in, like, it starts and the plot just starts ticking away, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff that's really packed. Like, the story, like, gets moving from the get-go. So, there's not a lot of moments where you actually get to sit down and get to know her as an individual. Um, and I, I think also partially the reason why I didn't connect with her as much is that I think about characters like Wonder Woman and Captain America and why I kind of I enjoyed them as characters, right? I know that their f- films are kind of flawed, but as characters, I kind of enjoyed them on the screen. I think um, part of it is that... Um, they kind of have this sort of heroic ideal that they're trying to deliver on a little bit, right? As in, you know, Wonder Woman has this idealism about saving the world. Captain America has this thing against standing, like with standing up to bullies and that sort of thing. And I felt with Carol, they didn't really spend time establishing, like, you know, what is it that really makes her a hero? They established that she was incredibly determined and incredibly, like, um, plucky and sort of, you know, she's once she sets her mind to something, she'll absolutely do it, and that is absolutely an admirable and a courageous trait. But um, is it necessarily a heroic trait? That's, I guess, that was for me. I guess for me, like it could be construed as heroic, but it doesn't feel as powerful as something like, um, you know, I guess the Wonder Woman ideal and the Captain America ideal, right? So I guess that was also why it kept me a little bit not as sort of. Um, engage with this film, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think that... What else was there? I, yeah, I, I think just generally, like, I, I kind of enjoyed the action sequences, but, oh yeah, I, this was the last bit, right? This was... When I was deconstructing this, the last bit that kind of made me feel like, oh, this is why I kind of felt this was okay, not amazing, not terrible, was also because in the climax of this film... She basically, her determination or her resolve overloads the chip in her skull that is basically keeping her inhibited, right? So, fine, so she's able to kind of overcome that. But I guess at no point in the film did I ever feel like she was in danger, right? So I actually think it's actually important for the hero to be in danger at some point in the film so that it kind of builds, like, a level of suspense and a level of, like, your kind of sort of concerned about the well-being of that hero. And I I think if you look at a lot of um, the recent Marvel films, you you do actually have that. Like, no no more than Avengers Infinity War, right? Where you have Thanos, who just seems like this unstoppable force, and you have every Avenger going after him. You just have this sense of, um, wow, how are they going to do this? What sort of ingenuity or courage or determination are they going to utilize to kind of overcome this insurmountable odd? And... I guess for her, because, like, really her thing was when she fried the chip, which I agree is, like, quite a feat, but 
at the same time, when she actually fought the bad guy, it was like a no contest, right? Like, so, um, so I, I guess that that was kind of why I thought it was like, yeah, it's it's a really entertaining film, and the action is really cool. I mean, she's got like sort of fire hair, and she like shoots lasers out of her hands, and like she's awesome and she's powerful. But like, I guess in terms of like engagement with her as a character, the fact that she was never really in trouble kind of I guess that 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 kind of took me a a little bit out of it right so yeah like overall I think my impressions are I thought it was a pretty decent film I thought it was okay but I don't think it's like one of Marvel's best I don't think it's their worst by far it's kind of just sitting there in the middle for me somewhere yeah Jerry well I think one thing we have to note about this film is that it tries to do something innovative about the origin stories about the origin story of a superhero. Um, most of the Marvel origin stories, the original Iron Man, um, Doctor Strange, um, they tell their story in a linear fashion, beginning yes, with yes. ordinary yep, ordinary dude, mm. and it's usually a dude. Something traumatic happens to them. They acquire powers by meeting, um, rising to the challenge of some adversity, and then in the process also go through some emotional arc where they become more empathetic than they were previously. So Tony Stark, uh, arms dealer or weapons manufacturer becomes a better human being. Uh, Dr. Stephen Strange, dickhead doctor becomes also a better human being after having gone through the experience of a car crash and trying to find himself, um, and and training uh, and acquiring his powers. This movie does something very different. And what it does is it says it starts after the origin of the hero has, after the hero has gone through her origin story, except she doesn't know what it is. And so she is in the process of discovering with us what her Mm. origins are. Now that's innovative and structurally Mm. bold so far as superhero movies go, but it also creates, I think a problem for this movie, namely because Carol Danvers until about halfway through the movie doesn't know who she is. We don't know. We don't know who she is either. She is a bit of a blank slate. She doesn't have as well-defined a personality as, say, Diana Prince did in Wonder Woman. So, strangely, we have a situation where, despite the fact that Carol Danvers is plucky, ordinary young woman who serves in the Air Force, and then by some quirk of by some accident of uh, of history comes to develop great, almost insuperable powers. She feels less relatable than Dinah Prince, a god. Who was born Um, a god, exactly, yes, agreed. born a god. Yeah. (laughs) And so, despite the fact that there is more, there is, you know, literally more humanity in Carol Danvers, as a storytelling matter, there is actually less humanity in Carol Danvers than there was in Dinah Prince. But having said that, I found the movie very entertaining. I thought it was a much more even and consistent movie than Wonder Woman was. Wonder Woman suffered a massive dip in quality in its last 20 minutes, and I don't think we saw something... I don't think we saw anything like that in in Captain Marvel. Um, But at the same time, we didn't see anything quite as stirring as, say, the Battle of Themyscira. Um, The thing is, you know, we've been waiting for Marvel for 10 years now to, to... produce a movie with a female led uh, with a led by a female hero um 
you know, for years people were asking Kevin Feige, well, why why aren't we getting a, a, a why aren't we getting a Black Widow movie? Why aren't we getting a Scarlet Witch movie? And they've finally given us a female-led film, and it's less stirring, I think, than Wonder Woman, simply because Wonder Woman, we had that incredible vision of all these women um, uh, sort of fighting, defending Themyscira, and each shot was like this beautiful tableau of these extremely fierce women um, kicking ass. And we don't see anything like that. We don't see anything quite as stirring as that. The attempted girl power moment in this movie is um, is Carol Danvers um, fighting the baddies with, no doubt, I'm just a girl playing in the background. And I think the almost universal consensus is that that moment kind of falls flat. Um, so the highs are probably not as high as they were in Wonder Woman, but the lows certainly weren't as low. So it's a much more even and consistent film. I think a lot of the action was quite good. I like the fact that the first real action set piece of the film is the chase between a car and an overhead train, which is a loving tribute to the very famous chase in The French Connection. Um, and I thought the de-aging technology that was used to make um, Samuel L. Jackson, who's 70 years old, look like, a, look like he was back in middle age, was just sort of creepily good. Yeah, did you, were you were you creeped out by that at all? I didn't even notice it. Like I didn't I, notice it. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Like, because remember oh, yeah, when they it, did it, Princess it was, Leia in Star Wars? Yeah, no, yeah, that, that 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 looked really bad. I mean, that technology has come a long way. Remember, like Jeff Bridges in um, Tron. Oh God, was this? yeah, Tron. Tron. Yeah, that was bad. Yeah, that was bad. Um, and Kurt Russell. Did, but do you think they actually de-aged him with CG, or do you think? He, they just slabbed on... Like, because Sam Jackson... Good skin. That, yeah, like, he doesn't look <laughs> super old. I think there, are, there are photos of him on set, and he's got sort of dots painted on his face, so the, there was a bit of mocap in the performance. Yeah. Okay. And I, obviously, there was a CG overlay on his face. Yeah. And it was uncannily good. Okay, um, can I respond to some of this naysaying? Back to the movie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, no, but... but, but so, so I, just wanted, I just wanted to say that, like... I, I think, you know, objectively speaking, this is a better movie, I think, than Wonder Woman. Um, and mm-hmm. Brie Larson is objectively a better actress than um, than Gal Gadot. No! Uh, there, there are just moments when it, it, it just, as I said, doesn't reach quite the highs, but at the same time doesn't doesn't plumb the, the same depths. So it's a much more it's a much more even film, and for that, I think it's to be commended. I think it's a it's a it's a very fine entertainment. Okay, okay. Darren, you know how you said um, she doesn't have the hero's ideal, the heroic ideal? It seems, it seems that all she's got is determination. I actually thought that it was, you know, when she finally gets that hero moment and she has those visions of her as a child where she's always knocked down but she gets up again to quote a song. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't see that as a determination because it's not as though she succeeds. It's not as though she does what she's meant to do in each of those occasions. She simply just gets up again. 
Um, and I think that is like that is definitely heroic, but it's heroic in a very human way. And I prefer the movies where the heroism is something that the everyday person, like you or me, could actually relate to and actually be able to um, emulate in actual life. So I thought it was a great hero moment that when she, you know, she has like, who am I? I'm someone who always gets up again, no matter what. Um, <clears throat> This thing with the whole chip and was she ever in danger, I think that's a really good point that you, you actually don't ever believe that she is in danger throughout the movie. But I have to wonder, you know, in Avengers Endgame, and this is a prequel in some ways to Endgame. I mean, the, the purpose of this movie is to set her up for her role in Endgame. Um, if, look, Thanos, if you remember, like he was unbeatable. Right, he was a god of gods. So we are going to need someone that is, you know, also in some ways invincible. If we are going to believe that Thanos can be beaten, so maybe that's why they are setting her up to have such um, infinite power there. The third point, Gerald, in terms of Diana Prince, and you said this, and I just, I don't know, I, I can't. Okay, Diana, yes, she has a lot of character and personality, and you really feel that. But if you break it down, Diana's personality is that she is funny, fu sorry, she is funny, she is charming, and she is sweet. And I would say that Carol Danvers has just as much personality, but it's a different kind of personality, and maybe it doesn't resonate as well. But I would say that Carol Danvers' personality is that she is serious, she's intense, She's a soldier. She's passionate and she's angry. Now, I felt a lot of her personality. It just wasn't the charming, sweet, fun personality that Diana Prince had. Um, and also, just on a final note, you know, Gerald, you're saying that in, in Wonder Woman, you know, you had all these women being so powerful and kicking ass on Themyscira. But it was not too many days ago when you said that that, that they were all crap because they had retreated so far. They were North Korea, you said. They had retreated so far into themselves that they were getting mowed down by guns and trying to use bows and arrows to kill <laughs> to kill soldiers and how lame that was. So, <laughs> so I don't know. Like, <laughs> I think as far as girl power goes... Carol Danvers was, was awesome, and this movie was awesome. Look, I, I, I think, I think, I, I think there's the, the thing is, I think you know, sort of, one can say that the actual society of Themyscira is lame, but <laughs> but concede that the kicking ass on the beach was awesome. And yeah, there's I agree. No inconsistency that. whatsoever. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> going to defend Gerald on this one. I agree with him. <laughs> the, the other thing, the, the thing I forgot to mention about this movie, which I think is quite important, um, is that. Um, the movie, if you think about it, take a step back, is actually this um, portrait of gaslighting. Perhaps not in the literal, perhaps not in the most, the strictest sense of the, of the term, where gaslighting means, cause, you know, bullshitting to someone to such an extent that they begin to doubt their own sanity. sanity. No, at no point does Carol Danvers doubt her sanity, but she is told by the Supreme Intelligence by Jude Law's character, who has the awful name, what is it? Yon Rog? Yon Rog, um, God. Uh, <laughs> yes, go, like, keep going. She's told by all of them to control her emotions, and so, you know, we're seeing a lot of sort of, we're seeing mm. a male authority figure telling telling a woman to control her emotions, that she, she'd be more successful if she if she controlled her emotions, so there's that. And there's also ah. the fact that, that she's, been, she's been told a lie about everything, the Krees are the baddies. She's been she's been led she's been told that they're the goodies, that the scrolls are the bad guys. And there's a massive swerve 
midway through the movie when we find out that, in fact, the opposite is the case. So we are. this is a portrait of a young woman who has been told to control her emotions but has been lied to by uh, every authority figure that she that she knows. And so it is this sort of, I think it is sort of writ large or perhaps writ small, the experience of um, a lot of women in the workplace, I think, because we know that she suffered as a, as a pilot um, gender discrimination because at one point uh, one of her male colleagues tells her there's a reason why it's called a cockpit. Um, and the experience carries through as she becomes she becomes absorbed into Cree society. So I actually think there's something quite there's, – there's a quite a powerful note struck um, in the story of Carol Danvers realising the truth, not only about herself, but also about um, the authority figures in whom she has invested a great deal of trust. And it turns out that the only authority figure that she could trust was Wendy Lawson, who is – of course, a woman. Um, and so I think there's something moving and deep about that, that even though I don't think, you know, Captain Marvel would blow you away with um, the charisma of the main character, is nonetheless um, a, a character, it's nonetheless a story that resonates and has, I think, um, a universal, carries a universal truth in a way that Wonder Woman doesn't. Because Wonder Woman is a story of a, of a God who comes to save mankind and sort of realizes our flaws and realizes her own limits. Whereas as always, as has often been the case, Marvel's slate of heroes seem more democratic. These are ordinary people to whom accidents or extraordinary things happen. Spider-Man gets bitten by the radioactive spider. Carol Danvers gets, uh, gets hit by the, um, by, by the, by the waves of energy from the, from the engine of, um, Dr. Lawson's ship. So uh, there's something democratic about Marvel heroes that that one doesn't that one doesn't see in in, D, in the DC slate of heroes. And so her experience, Carol Danvers' experience, I think, um, despite the fact that you know she may not be the most she may not be, she may be a bit of a blank slate as far as her character goes, is nonetheless resonant and has you know and speaks to perhaps the universal experience of a great many women. And that, that is, I think, quite one of the most powerful aspects of the film. Well, the, the thing for me, though, is I think you've, set a, you've sort of uh, set that up quite well, Gerald. It's just that the whole movie felt like a very shallow exploration of that. If they'd spent more time, and I don't give them a back pass, um, backstage pass for saying they did try to do something different with the plot to follow nonlinear um, experiment, but there are other movies that did something quite similar, you know, like I'm thinking about the arrival and, you know, the whole twist is the fact that it's kind of backwards, going forwards and going backwards. Um, so there are movies where you can actually do that and do that successfully. Um, I just felt like it was quite shallow, like I wanted to know more about her relationship with Wendy Larson. That was, to me, the pivotal relationship in uh, her entire backstory. And there's only that one scene where, was it one or two scenes where you, you get a glimpse of that relationship? So I don't know if whether or not they've just gone, look, this movie, the whole, pro the whole point of this movie is just to set it up and we'll explore it more in the next movie, Captain Marvel 2 or, or whatever the next movie will be um, after Avengers Endgame where they flesh out 
who Carol Danvers is more fully, it just felt quite shallow, and that's what I was disappointed with. And I think it's it might be I'm quite I've been quite spoiled potentially with um, having lived with you know the characters of Captain America and um, <coughs> or and so on for you know a long time. So I wonder if it's a bit of that as well. It's hard because you know she had two females to build relationships with, um, and then but she also really had to establish a relationship with Nick Fury, and she had to establish a relationship with the villain as well. So it was yeah, there was a lot that had to happen in that two-hour movie. Did, did you feel like her relationship with Jude Law, Yon Rog, was mm. compelling though? Like it was kind of her relationship with her t- her Cree team was. It seemed really shallow as well. And look, there was one scene in particular where it really dawned on me how, it, like, her relationship with that team was kind of weird. And I, I wasn't really sure if the implication was that they'd never been on a mission together or they had trained together and they knew each other or, or whatever it was, right? Because I guess one of the weird, disconcerting moments for me and the team is when her team rocks up and, like, they just turn on each other, right? And at one point, one of the guys in the team says, I don't want to do this. And he is the only guy who says mm. that, right? Which was really weird. I was like, wouldn't all of these guys be a little bit like, I don't really want to do this. Wouldn't she also have had her memories training with them? So my only rec- like my only understanding there would be they didn't really know each other before the mission at all. So if if they didn't really know each other before the mission, then... There's, like, not really a lot of emotional impact, right? I, I guess, <laughs> yeah, like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really feel Yon Rog was a particularly interesting villain. He kind of was, like, he came across, to be honest, was, as just, like, a little bit of a minion, right? Like, sure, he was manipulative, but he did come across as a little bit of a minion. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, one of the things that I did not pick up on, which... Um, both Gerald and Anager did pick up on was this idea that like the whole emotion thing was so so no, egregious. Really? Well, well, because I, I think about it this way. I really didn't. You're I, such I, a man, Dad. You're such a man. No, you, no, no. You can just go back to your patriarchy. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. So look, let me ask you, you a question. Your, your, your patriarchy and your sympathy. <laughs> so let me ask you a question, right? Like. When he said that, it actually reminded me of, like, the Karate Kid, right? Where, like, Miyagi will tell Daniel, like, you know, you have to fight calmly. And so I, I didn't actually really pick up on that at all. And I, like, to be honest, like, it was, like, at the end, I was like, okay, so he's just saying that because he is trying to, like, find some sort of angle to win, right? And good honor. What but, like, is just... it? What makes it different is a man saying it to a woman and the long history of men using that same line against women to to um, to sort of demote them in the eyes of everybody else and to as an argument for why they are never going to be as good as men. And so I think it's that history that and, and seeing a man saying it to a woman that makes it different, whereas you have, have a man saying the same thing to another man and it takes on a different meaning. Yeah, I gotta say, I, I I didn't really get that context because I guess I viewed it through a very different lens. Right? Where... No one's ever told you you're too emotional, Darren. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of people have told me I'm too emotional. You can you can ask my sister. You can ask my sister and my wife. <laughs> but I was when I saw that, I was thinking about Vulcan Star Trek. 
Yeah. It's half Vulcan and half human. And, like, the whole human part is the emotional part and the Vulcan part was, like, suppressing suppressing emotion. So it's almost like, it's like, I guess what you guys were saying and if you're about triumph of sort of the human spirit and the humanness in Carol Danvers and what and that mm. sort of to, to stand for. Like if they did a little bit more of that, I, I just felt like a lot of those themes and a lot of those concepts that they were trying to explore, they because they were trying to do so much, everything got a bit lost and it felt a bit, yeah. Mm. Well, uh, Jude Law was going. Uh, I'm just I'm just saying I'm, I'm hopeful they'll build on that because. I mean, if those are the strains of who her character is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and, you know, Captain America is probably going to either die or exit in Endgame. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Captain America is going to exit Endgame, uh, exit the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Endgame. These are my predictions. So is Iron Man. So who's going to fill the void for the sort of the, the human superhero? Because the mm-hmm. likelihood... Spider-Man's not going to be there either. So she's got to be both the heart and the mind. Um, He's mm. got the mind bit and the strength, but who's going to have the heart? That's the role that Captain America plays in the cinematic universe. So is that going to be her? <coughs> has to embody all of those qualities at once. Um, so if that's, the tr- if that's what they're aiming for, then I think they're going to have to try harder. It's obviously Hawkeye, though, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hawkeye. Wouldn't it be funny if at the end of Endgame, Hawkeye was the only man left? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, when um, when Jude Law was baiting Carol Danvers to, like, control her emotion and beat him in hand-to-hand cam- combat, and she just blew him away... I yelled out, yes, and started clapping, and no one in the cinema clapped. (laughs) Everyone everyone in the cinema was thinking, well, there's a woman who needs to control her emotions. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Jerry. (laughs) Um, So, okay. Um, Jerry, you want to go? Oh yeah, I just wanted to say one of the uh, one of the sort of um, revelations of this movie is that uh, is that if you're Ben Mendelsohn and you allow your Australian accent to come out and to make it relatively broad, uh, you sound slightly more sinister. <laughs> Do you know? Okay, so was yeah. that, I think this was one of the only films I've ever seen Ben Mendelsohn play a good guy. I'm so used to him playing like villains now, right? This has <laughs> got, got such a hateable face. He's got the... Well, you oh, can see his got, face! <laughs> yeah. Because he's, he's, got, he's got sort of resting dickhead face. And so, and, and so, you know, even though he's a very fine actor and I'm sure a top bloke, um, in every role, you just want to punch him. Like, you, I wanted to punch him in The Dark Knight Rises. He's um, really, really... He was really smarmy and Rogue One. He was. Um, what else has he been in? He, he's almost sort of like he's sort of unctuous and smarmy and everything that he's in. Um, but you know, there's and, this whole like who's the other? Who's the guy in Game of Thrones? Noah Taylor. Noah Taylor's. So both him, Ben Mendelsohn, and Noah Taylor have kind of like locked down all the sort of Australian villains. 
in Hollywood now, right? Because if you go, want a villain, you go to Noah Taylor or you go to, like, Ben Mendelsohn. <laughs> and, like, yeah. they play very similar sort of styles of villain. So, um, yeah. Did you end up liking the Skrulls, though? I, I gotta say, like, emotionally, I actually really connected with the whole Skrull... Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But That's that... my people. They're freedom fighters all the way. <laughs> no, no, I, I, think, I, think, I think the scrolls were great. I think in in the era of Trump building the wall and trying to deport people, and in the era of uh, Peter Dutton trying to uh, ensure that uh, children uh, without children asylum seekers who happen to be children don't find their way to Australia, I think it's refreshing to find that. Um, that this is a movie that's deeply sympathetic to the refugee experience because that's ultimately mm. what they are. And in fact, mm. this is the second movie that, um, the second Marvel movie that has touched upon the refugee experience. The first being Asgard. Thor Ragnarok, when, yeah. when the entire uh. population of Asgard uh, has to leave. Um, and they, they're they wiped out in the first two minutes of, um, of, Infinity, of, of Infinity War. So, the, the, there is something refreshing about um, about seeing the superhero movie that's also slightly a, a bit of an allegorical um, rendering of the, the refugee experience. Absolutely, I should say I should say that the movie tries to explain Carol Danvers' absence from the Marvel Cinematic Universe today by saying, "Well, she's helping the Skrulls find their new homeland." So she's basically she's basically the UNHCR rendered on a galactic scale. Um, but the thing is. Yeah. I actually think the movie does a really bad job of, of of explaining her absence. That is not a good enough reason for why she she hasn't turned up when like the fate of the world, you know, was you know was was at stake uh, up until now. I mean, you ask you should just think about how awful the events of Avengers: Infinity War, War were, and like. Only as he was about to turn to ash does Nick Fury uh, press the pager, and you just think, what an idiot, you know? And yeah, and, and she, she's so like she's there's so an sort article of like, on that. Well, because she's so sort of like remote that she doesn't realise that Thanos is, is is posing this threat. Like, where's she been all this time? But more than that, why does Fury not press it during the first Avengers film when there's a Correct. galactic invasion of Earth, right? Like, it's ongoing, right? And at that point, he doesn't even know if the Avengers are going to pull together, right? The helicarriers have been destroyed. You think about the events of the first Avengers film. The helicarriers have been destroyed. S.H.I.E.L.D. is in a shambles. You've only got, like, six, five, five superheroes that they're relying on. At that point, if you were Nick Fury, wouldn't you go, hang on, there's an invasion of Earth going on. I probably Fine. should press the button. <laughs> I googled Captain Marvel characters so that I wouldn't call the Kree the Squee and nevertheless still call them the Squee. But as I was as I was googling it, I saw an article titles saying that there was an explanation for why he hadn't pressed the button. But obviously, it was a retrospectively imposed explanation, and I can't find that article now. It, but it was a lame a explanation because she, she, she gives them the pager and says only for emergencies. And you would have thought the events of the first Avengers was a freaking emergency. Yeah, absolutely. The, the events of, the events of uh, Captain America, uh, uh, Winter Soldier, huge emergency. <laughs> Robert Redford was going to wipe out, you know, sort of three quarters of the, of the world's population. Massive emergency. The events of Thor 2, one of the worst movies ever made, but still an emergency. So, so where was she all this time? Why didn't Nick Fury reach for the pager? So, okay, I, I, he, think, I think you touch on something... So this is 
this is where I do have concern about the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you've touched on it, right? Which is this idea of, to move forward, they need to kind of, like, retroact... They need to build retroactive continuity, right? And I one of the my major concerns with this film is the retroactive continuity that they have there, right? So part of it is linked to the pager, and part of it is also linked to the Cosmic Cube, the Tesseract, right? So I feel like in this film, like they didn't really need to bring the Tesseract into it, right? But for whatever reason, they felt they absolutely needed to bring the Tesseract into yeah. it. Yeah, for they me, it's the link. They remind us all the time about the Tesseract to link up all the movies. Yeah, but it was just really weird because up to this point, you kind of what you've kind of believed is well, the Tesseract fell into the ocean when Captain America got shot down with Red Skull, right? So they're in the ocean since the 40s. And then at some point, S.H.I.E.L.D. digs it out of the ground, because at the end of Captain America, I think S.H.I.E.L.D. digs the Tesseract out of the ground, and then it's in S.H.I.E.L.D. possession, right? And so now in this film, you're meant to believe that sometime in the 80s or the 90s, this lady takes the thing without S.H.I.E.L.D. really even being particularly concerned about it. So um, whatever her name, um, Annette uh What's, what's that character's name? Um, and I'm not getting it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Marvel. Marvel. Yes, her, the, the doctor, right? The doctor, she takes a cube, and it's not like she's doing experiments with it in a shield lab. She squirrels it away to her invisible ship in space. So, what? Like, has shield just forgotten that it had this cube? Like, what was going on there? It, it felt like a really weird piece of retroactive continuity to explain. And... My concern is that what's happening is that, like, okay, so this is this is what happens in comic books, right? Because in comic books, they start running out of space, right? As in, like, they feel like they need to, like, create this sense of history or whatever. So they start going back into their history and kind of, like, saying, oh, that just appeared to happen this way, but what really happened was X, Y, and Z, right? And I think that's actually one of the worst aspects of comic books because, and the reason this happens is because comic books have this serialized format and they can never end, and therefore the story has to keep going, so you need to build drama in some sort of way, right? And my concern with the MCU is that as we are like this is a mature universe at this point in time, right? And as we're getting to like the more mature films, they're pulling these comic book sort of um, devices out to put into their cinematic universe. But they're not the good comic book devices. They're like the ones that are really frustrating. And um, yeah, I, I think the ones that actually make the comic book format not like super. Um, super engaging, right? Like, I, I feel like mm. it's actually one of the detriments of comics. So, it was really weird that they decided to, like, use this in this way. Um, yeah, for me, the Tesseract thing, like, while it was very, like, kind of funny that the cat, or whatever it's called, what's it called? The cat? No, the flurkin. Flurkin. Yeah, the flurkin. It was funny <laughs> that the flurkin ate it, right? But it was just like... It felt really kind of out of place that they had this really circuitous story for, like, the, the the Tesseract being there. I think linked to this as well, and Mags brought this up when we left the cinema, and you know, on reflection, I kind of agree with it, is that, like, as they plumb this universe more and more, I, I kind of feel like they're explaining stuff that don't ne doesn't necessarily have to be explained, right? Like, so the way Nick Fury lost his eye 
was always like kind of enigmatic and kind of cool, right? And I kind of feel like those sorts of things, sometimes it's better to leave the mystery the mystery. Mm. You don't have to explain every aspect of your universe, mm. right? Yeah. I felt like yeah. that, like them doing the thing with Nick Fury kind of cheapened his character <laughs> a little bit. Um, mm. yeah, I'm not sure I yeah. necessarily yeah. agree it's with the, that. It's Sorry. the solo problem. In other words, no one needed to know how Han Solo got his name yeah. because it was a cool name. Yeah. And by telling us that uh, that he got the name Han Solo because he was on his own standing in the immigration queue, it was just completely lame and kind of shattered the um, aura around the character. And so, yes, you do see a bit of that, I think, with Nick Fury um, mm. uh, and, and how he lost his eye. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, one of the great, the great, the great thing about you know the way Sam Jackson has played Nick Fury um, in the in the last ten years is he's just got that distinctive look. He's got that long coat. He's got the eye patch. I mean, he just he, he basically looks like an even more badass Shaft. And, um, and and in this movie, he's kind of just this sort of schlubby cop. Um, and uh, you know, whilst it's whilst it's nice and entertaining to see kind of Nick Fury's own origins, uh, it does it does kind of ruin uh, the character just a little bit to see him in the to see him in this incarnation. But I think, you know, we, we are gonna see more of this from um, from the MCU because one of the one of the things the MCU has figured out is that well one of the things Marvel Studios has figured out is that um, audiences love to see the connections between these various movies. They mm. love Seeing how how the how interconnected they are, and how even though it is something of an illusion to suggest that there is a whole greater than the sum of the parts here, uh, nonetheless people enjoy uh, the magic trick of thinking that there is, or being persuaded that there is a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. And so you know it's a it's a it's a it's a trend that we're seeing in a lot of franchises that things are meant to be interconnected. You know, in James Bond, for instance, in Spectre, uh, we find out that uh, Blofeld was actually James Bond's adopted brother, um, and 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 was responsible for all the events of the last three James Bond movies. So we're seeing this attempt by franchises to build these elaborate interconnected mythologies and. Um, I, I think I think that's a trend that will only continue, um, particularly in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and particularly as Disney moves on with the acquisition of twenty first of twentieth Century Fox, or is it now twenty first Century Fox? Because <laughs> then Disney 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 will come Disney will have possession of the X Men. So at some point yeah. we'll, we may even see the fusion of the X Men into the broader Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, at, at which point you're really going to see a whole bunch of threads being woven in order to try and integrate uh, these various disparate elements into what looks like a big hole. So just brace yourself for the fact that there's going to be a lot of ratconning uh, to come, I think. And um, and and you know there's no, there's nothing we can there's nothing we can do to stop it as we as we move into the next phase of um, of the MCU. Yeah, I I, do, I think that's sad. Go on. No, no, sorry, sorry. Well, no, yeah, you go. Look, I, I do think that oh, that's come. sad, right? Like, I think that, um, I, look, I, I think sometimes, so, like, when the connections feel organic, it it's great, right? But the problem mm. is that increasingly, as 
these franchises feel the need to do it, do it. They force these. They force the threads through the hole, and it's. I think it like sort of audiences are not so dumb that they can't sense when like those connections are being forced, right? As you said, that sort of Blofeld thing with Bond, it's like, doesn't feel organic. It just feels like they wanted to have some sort of connection, so they did it even though it was, like, completely implausible, right? Now, I, I think with the MCU, like, so I think a really good example of this, Jez, in this film is actually, um, so the fact that they felt like they had to use the Kree here, right? So I think one of the great things about Guardians of the Galaxy is it established the universe was a huge, like it's this vast place with all these unknown places and weird entities and like galactic empires and all this type of stuff, right? And I love that about Guardians because it introduced all this all these additional layers of mysteries to the Marvel Universe, right? It wasn't just Asgard and the Seven Realms or whatever. It's like this huge universe. But then Mm -hmm. with Captain Marvel, they've kind of like, like from a world-building perspective, they've kind of shrunk it down, right? Because all of the aliens you've, with the exception of the Skrull, with the exception of the Skrull, all of the aliens you've pretty much seen before. So even the big bad alien at the end of this film is the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Ronan the Accuser. That's right, right? He's the guy yeah. with the hammer. So it was kind yeah. of like, well, yeah, I can understand. Part of me understands why they wanted to bring him back because it's like a essence, like a thread of continuity. But it's also like, well, you know, the universe is a big place, right? You already have, you've already dropped the name Kree. Astute viewers will know that it's the same empire. Do you really have to have exactly the same guy? Like, is, is their empire really that small that they only have, like, three guys running around doing all of their dirty yeah. work for them? Like, I think this is something Marvel needs to be really careful of, right? Because when you build too many connections, the world becomes very, very small. And um, I, I think that's actually, as I said, I think that's detrimental to the universe. Yeah, look, I think that, I think that's right. I think one of the big problems with, one of the, big problems with the um, Star Wars universe for quite a while now is that if you if you take a step back it's just the story of one family and how utterly boring is that when when it's the story of you know <laughs> it's a story it's it's the story of a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away i mean it's it, it's meant to be a story painted on a cosmic scale but is at the same time the story of of of, of one family mm. um and 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 so you don't want the marvel universe to be emulating that particular part of Star Wars storytelling. In other words, taking something that seems to have a cosmic scale, something operatic in scope, and yet sort of shrinking it down to to the level almost of soap opera mm-hmm. uh, by having everything be interconnected and so intimately and inextricably linked to each other. Um, I also think the best connections are the subtle ones, and so they could make lots of connections, but really 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 subtle ones that only like really diehard fans who watch this movie three times are going to figure out are going to be better than the ones that hit you over the head and just seem cheesy yeah agreed 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 um okay. on the topic of cheesy what did you think of the music cheesy you didn't like it <laughs> I didn't like the I'm, I'm Just a Girl. Yeah, I actually didn't like any of the music. Um, but I definitely didn't like I'm Just a Girl playing because it was too it was too um, slow. Like, we needed something more upbeat for that action scene. 
Yeah. I think they were trying to emulate Guardians. In, you know, because, you know, Guardians had that sort oh, of yeah. pop culture soundtrack as well, right? Mm. So I think they were trying to do the 90s pop culture soundtrack. Look, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't notice the music hugely, maybe because I'm not as plugged into music. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Gerald? Oh, look, I thought, I thought a lot of the music was fun, even though, like... It was a bit of a it was a bit of a weird grab bag. I mean, that scene when um, Carol Danvers is sucked into the Supreme Intelligence and Nirvana's "Come As You Are" starts playing, I thought was just bizarre. Um, I mean, it was as if someone someone thought to themselves, "Hey, Nirvana was like the iconic band of the '90s, therefore we've got to shove a Nirvana song into it mm-hmm. somehow." Uh, and that felt that felt really forced, um, much perhaps even more so than than the than the use of no doubt in that in that action sequence. Um, the other thing about the other thing about the movie is it, it, it. I think the movie is set in the second half of the nineties because um, the internet, internet, cafe, internet cafes are around. Windows ninety five has been used, and Alta Vista is the big search engine. So. I think this is we're talking about post 95, 96, 97, that time period, and um, grunge had already died by then. Like, so the notion of uh, Carol Danvers going around with ripped jeans and flannel shirts, uh, listening to Nirvana, that 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 feels slightly odd. By this time, like pop had well and truly staged a comeback. Like the Spice Girls had completely obliterated like grunge as a as a, as a in terms of a popular musical form. So um, I thought there was something... There was she, something she would have I, disappeared. I, I, she disappeared from Earth six years that, earlier. Six years earlier. So, like, okay. So, so she, she, would have, she would have... So she would have left... So she, she quote-unquote, died in 1989. So she'd never heard Nirvana. When was Nirvana? Nirvana 19... Like, 91 to about 94. Okay. Like it, Nirvana was Nirvana was there. Nirvana had a brief but glorious run, and um, and so some of the some of the music some of the musical choices felt as if they were they were intended to evoke the era without for no reason other than to evoke the era. There wasn't any sort of emotional purpose being served by some of the music, particularly mm. with "Come As You Are," um, mm-hmm. and so and so that that felt and. and that felt really weird. Whereas in Guardians of the Galaxy, he, you know, Star Lord has this really, ha, the, the the weird music is part of Star Lord's character because he's got these weird musical tastes. His mother made him these mixtapes and he loves playing them, and so they're, they're filled with these sort of late seventies, early eighties pop, and so it's it, it's a feature of his character. It's integrated in the storytelling, whereas the use of music in this movie didn't feel quite as organic. It, it felt mm-hmm. a lot more forced and um as if to as if the the filmmakers weren't confident in their ability to 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 evoke the the 1990s you know uh, you know i agree with you gerald but because i wasn't a big music fan when i was younger but i was a big video game fan and the thing i actually noticed was that when she walks in so this is a really dumb 
nerdy detail, but she walks into the bar. You remember <laughs> she has she has the memory of the bar and the game mm, on yeah. display is Street Fighter Two Championship Edition, and that was released in 1992. I remember that very very clearly, nice. right? And so there's no way she could have played Championship Edition before she disappeared. In fact, <laughs> I don't think the original World Warrior Street Fighter Two World Warrior had been released then. So um, yeah, <laughs> that was that was my big like. Mm, so when did she really disappear? But anyway, like that's mm. that's by the by. Um, oh, guys! So it seems that Nick Fury did page her, but she was stuck in a room. What? Oh. What? <laughs> the hell? <laughs> Can you explain that? What? What are you talking about? It's, it, it's, a, it's a reference to the movie Room, in which Brie Larson won her Oscar. Oh, okay. There we go. Oh, there we go. Amateur. <laughs> oh, movie, movie jokes. <laughs> Taking this podcast to another level. <laughs> Meta movie jokes. <laughs> oh, how long did you spend right. thinking of that, Anisha? How long? <laughs> okay, look, on that note, I don't know if we can keep going after that singer. <laughs> I, think, I think we're done. <laughs> can anyone right, say anything about that? Are you looking forward to Endgame? Yes, I am, actually. I cannot wait. Yeah, I'm very excited. But Endgame is in May or April? April. It is April. April. Yeah. Okay. So in the intervening time, I think there are a few other comic book movies coming out, right? There's Hellboy. Shazam. And Shazam that I'm actually personally really looking forward to. Uh, the, the, they've been, they've been sort of uh, pre-release screenings and reviews of Shazam, and a lot of critics are saying it is absolutely hilarious. So hopefully, hopefully uh, it's a sign that the DC Extended Universe, liberated from the shackles of Zack Snyder, uh, has found its footing and will go from strength to strength. Uh, we can only hope. Um, and, like you, I'm looking forward to And yes. if, if uh, any DC executives are listening to this, <laughs> we'll give a fair and honest review, I promise. So give us three screenings, please. <laughs> yeah, no, like, look, we, we like DC comics. We, we love Batman. Notwithstanding that he's a, he's a wealthy serial killer who beats the shit out of poor people on a nightly basis. We still love him. We still love him. We will, we will follow every fascist rabbit hole that he chased, that he, he leads us down. <laughs> so DC listening we're cool we're cool with whatever we want to do provided it's good <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> yeah you'll you'll have access to our huge listener base of like 50 maybe on a good one <laughs> on a good day on, on a, a good, good on a really good day <laughs> oh. all right guys shall we wrap it up i agree let's wrap it up thanks all right Thank See you, you soon. Much, guys. Bye. Bye.